jazz. Okay, wow. Let's do a podcast. There's an idea. Well, I'm going to apologize ahead of time. I don't know what the sound quality is going to be like on this one. Welcome to Jazz Bastard Podcast 107. I'm Pat. I'm Mike. And uh, Mike is podcasting from abroad. He's deep in the Windy City. I'm, I'm actually in the far south suburbs, and for once, we are only one time zone apart, not three. <laughs> there you go. Although, if it was less cold, I might have driven down to your place, but it's two. It's nine. Actually, the high today here was nine, and with wind chill, it was about negative 10. So I've been inside all day drinking cocoa. Yeah, we cracked like 15, so <laughs> not, not much better. Anyway, uh, the other event recently, as, as a special holiday surprise when I got back home, was my computer died. So I'm using an old rickety laptop, and my guess is the sound quality on my end is going to be atrocious. We'll see what we can put together for you all. My notes are gone at the moment. I think they'll be recovered eventually, and we're just going to make do with what we got. And what that is is we're going to do a couple top ten albums from 2015 and a couple of quartets that I brutally left off our special fourth anniversary quartet show <laughs> by not realizing I was supposed to listen to them. You want to tell the listeners about those two? They are plots from <laughs> the from the uh, <laughs> from the Sophie All Stars list. Plots, extraordinary renditions. Plots is a offshoot project of I think I think that's a fair way to describe it. Uh, plots is an offshoot by one of the guys who was in Andrew Durkin's industrial jazz group, trumpeter. I want to say Rosenboom, Rosenbloom. I want to get okay. his name right. I don't want to screw that up. Dan Rosenboom. I've actually met Dan. Dan Rosenboom. Jake Vossler, Vossler on guitar, Austin Wrinkle on drums, and Orest Balaban on bass. And also he sings the one number that has a vocal component here. So that's Extraordinary Renditions from 2007. Plots, hardcore Balkan jazz rock. <laughs> yeah, and we that. did a special on the industrial jazz group back on episode 7. So if you want to hear a lot about that big band or little big band ensemble, depending on the recording, we talked about that way back at the beginning on episode 7. Back in the beginning when we were young and fresh and new and we cared. And then uh, the other is uh, Harold Land's The Promised Land. You know a lot more about Harold Land than I do. So I just got this. It came across my radar and I grabbed it. And to get the personnel, it's Harold Land on tenor, of course. It's a pretty good quartet, in fact. Uh, Mulgrew Miller on piano, Ray Drummond on bass, and Billy Higgins on drums. And that was released in, let me get the year, 2000. That's what I thought. I almost said that should have. And then you have the two other discs, right. which and, are... And, and these are the 2015 poll winners, two of the top ten. So Henry Threadgill's In for a Penny, In for a Pound by Zuid, And Tom Harrell's First Impressions. And there's a pun there because he is covering some impressionistic composers. So some I of the did compositions, not know that. Yeah, or by Debussy and Ravel. And then a couple of them are oh, by him. Oh, I, I got you. I got you. I, don't, I did not think of them as impressionists, but I, I guess that counts. Well, okay. inter- yeah, I, I, I looked up a couple of the pieces on YouTube to hear performances of the compositions inspiring his arrangements. And yeah, they tend to be fairly melodic song this is not like an extended this is not bolero or something or right. you know a long tone poem they tend to be uh, more of the hummable end of the impressionist spectrum so anyway those are our four selections 
where do you want to begin? Do you want to begin with plots, I guess, or, or land, or where, where do you want to start? You start. I don't care. Tell me where you want to start. That's fine with me. Whatever you want to do. Okay. You drive. You drive. All since right. you have the weak computer. That's right. It is It is weak. And uh, as always, I am weak, so together we are one strong thing. Let's just get Harold out of the way. That's not nice. You love Harold. I I think this was a plot against me. I do love Harold. I think that Harold Land made some fine recordings. He is probably best known for holding the tenor chair in the Clifford Brown Max Roach Ensemble, which was a very influential hard bop ensemble. Made several records. For a while, Land was in it. Then I think a family crisis brought him back to the West Coast, and he was replaced by Sonny Rollins. And you'll get arguments about whether Sonny or Harold fit into that ensemble best. Some people will champion Harold. I don't think anyone would argue Harold's a better tenor player than Sonny, but no. in that ensemble, some people argue he fit better. And then he made a few albums on his own. The one I know the best is called The Fox. Right. Elmo Hope plays piano on that and provides some of the compositions. And it was recommended by this guy that writes this book on hard bop, David Rosenthal, I want to say. And, yeah. and for me, that was a really seminal book because it really is it's written partially as a critic, but as someone who cares about and enjoys the music and talking really about albums in that genre, which he defines pretty broadly, that he likes. And artists that you would not necessarily have heard about. So Elmo Hope gets discussed. Land gets discussed artists you know he talks about Sonny Rollins as a hard bop artist which is weird I mean he was but at some level I never think of him in that category because he was so much more and Andrew Hill's early albums I just it really kind of introduces you to a lot of players who are not in the top echelon of known jazz names and, and he'll tell you, you know this he thinks this is the best album this one's okay and you may not agree with his judgments all the time I don't but it's a way of kind of navigating into these mysterious waters so anyway yeah that's a fantastic record uh harold in the land of jazz is okay he records a couple albums on contemporary which is one of the good west coast labels this is much later in life on i think a wannabe audiophile label it was just proudly talking about how the sound was very unprocessed it was very real and direct and one thing you'll notice about the recording is it's recorded at a very low level it's not that's typically a good thing i mean what that means is you crank your volume up and there can actually be distinctions between soft and loud it's not all one volume uh, and you can hear the bass yeah you you can actually you know you can hear the instruments and you can hear space and you can hear dynamics because it you know you can make an album as loud as you want but as long as you have a volume knob that doesn't really it's, it's a relative thing you're better off with dynamic range less compression is what they call it which is when they cram everything together into the same volume to make it all pop so anyway, I, I don't know, you know, I've, I've, I've run into another recording that I'm hoping we can do in a few weeks. It was recorded somewhat in the style. This, this one I've got was recorded direct to disc, where they literally don't use any tape. They just cut a, a master lacquer as the people are playing. And so you can't edit it. You can't stop the performance. If something goes wrong, the whole take is ruined. There is no mixing after the fact. It just goes right to a disc. And it's neat and it's immediate, but I think what it teaches you is that studio trickery is our friend. <laughs> it, you know, if it's used in moderation, right? You know, it turns out a little echo or whatever, 
typically makes things sound a lot better. Now, you know, obviously you can go way overboard. You can get some horrible 80s Uber production with 64 tracks dripping with scents, and this is disgusting. But, you know, a little... A little sugar helps the medicine go down. Anyway, that's not the problem I have with this recording. Can you guess what my problem with this recording is? Harold Land is slightly flat. The the adjective there, the adjective. <laughs> Inappropriate, my friend. It's like saying Jackie McLean is slightly sharp. <laughs> or Vladimir Nabokov is slightly dead. Oh, my God. This is, I, I you know, listening to this, and I think Harold's also... He is not the Herald of 30 years ago. No. I wondered why I found this disc in a dollar bargain bin. I Yeah, I felt like it was maybe a little cruel. I I don't know that I would have released this if it had been Pat the Dictator. We were talking about Pat the Dictator before the podcast started. Thank God I'm not in charge of things. It'd be an awful world. But I I don't know. I don't. I mean, the rhythm section is obviously quite good. Yes. I don't think this is a kind addition to his legacy. I don't think it's very flattering to Harold. He is terribly flat. I mean, wow. Throughout, throughout. I mean, yeah, through the I whole mean, thing. Yeah. And it, it sounds it, like he's recorded at a slightly different speed somehow. Yeah. It, it does. It does bother me more than Prime Jackie. I, 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 I just I don't. Agree. I don't. I it, 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 it's a sad making thing. I actually had the, I was rehearsing with somebody, some piece, and I started playing and I just realized it sounded like I was at my own funeral and realized, oh, my mouthpiece is like a quarter of an inch or more too far out off. <laughs> and I was like, just horribly <laughs> flat. Like, what the hell's that noise? Like, okay, I just needed. So, and it was like that, but worse. And having lost a couple steps, I mean, if you listen to the Fox, man, those guys are just fucking, yeah, the yeah, head yeah. to that tune is, is, is unparsable. It's so fast. And they just they execute it with this kind of brilliance and intensity, and the whole album's a delight. And then this is just kind of anyway. So thoughts on thoughts on this? I felt like I, I guess I could say on the positive side, when he gets into the upper register of the horn, he's less flat, so he sounds closer to better. When it really shows is on the slower stuff. So Ugly Beauty, man, that's that's a tough one. The opening of Ugly Beauty, blah, da, da. I mean, ooh, yeah, yeah. he's he's it's not good. And like someone in love at 12 and a half minutes, that's tough. Yeah, he's not in great form here when when he he, he still is capable of some pretty fleet passages. And when he, when he gets into the upper registers on the horn, I, I tend to like him better. He reminds me, you know, I kind of thought, obviously, he reminds a lot of people of certain at, at certain times of Coltrane. I don't know if I'd go quite that far. I kind of thought of like Billy Harper on Salmonex. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's just a little a little sleepy. But but when he gets up to speed, he's pretty good. But yeah, especially the heads, the openings. It's just painful. You just it's not it's not good. What's new? Not not good. So. It's 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 kind of sad. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it shouldn't have been released because when he gets cooking, I think it's 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 not shameful. I don't think it's a great addition to his legacy, but I I think he holds up his end of the bargain in the fleeter passages. But yeah, it's it's and at any time 
whenever the pace slows down, it's not good. And anytime he, especially when he's in the lower register on the horn, to me, he sounds really flat. Mulgrew Miller has some interesting comping in some of his solos here. The other members of the rhythm section don't get much. I think they were there to just kind of, it's clearly Harold's date. Like, you know, he's yeah. the showpiece. Yeah, so it's him. not, it's not a quartet where everyone gets equal time. It's definitely, they're there to support him. And the, the members of the rhythm section get correspondingly less attention. Miller gets the most. There's a few, not many, uh, passages by Drummond and just a little bit of drum soloing. Yeah, I think the biggest complaint I have really with these numbers is they take too long to get going. Once they do get going, they tend to be better. But none of these comes in at under seven minutes. And all of them should be maximum seven minutes. Some of these numbers go on 12 and a half, 11 minutes, and uh, it's a long disc for six numbers. It should have been about half that length. But if it had been half that length, it would have been on Blue Note 30 years before, and Harold would have been in great, right. great form. So, yeah, it's it's sad wishing for what could have been, but in the bargain bin for a dollar, it's not terrible. Sure. And I think the, the main use of it is to remind listeners, if, if you like the hard bop era and the post bop era, Harold Land is a name you're probably not going to hear about right. often, and he's a fine player. He really he is. is. Don't start with this disc. Oh, God, no. Yeah, you have to go back to the 60s, but you know, the Fox is fine. He also appears on several Curtis Counts group albums, the most notorious being you get more bounce with Curtis Counts, Ugh. where you have a woman with her blouse open listening to her heartbeat <laughs> with a stethoscope <laughs> and smiling and jumping. Not all the way open, because it was you know the 50s or the 60s, Anyway, that, that's a fine little group. It, it, he's a West Coast cat. And most of his playing is done on the West Coast, most of the recording. Obviously, he joins that East Coast group with Clifford Brown and Max Roach, but uh, he's only with them briefly. And, you know, he's a fine player. He's got a slightly sour or acidic tone in his glory days, but he's not flat, and he's very fleet. And, you know, he's just he's he's got his own personality, right? It, it yeah. takes a little while to pick up on it because he's probably a more generic quote-unquote sounding player than like a Sonny Rollins or a Ben Webster. I don't you know. I mean, he's not as got a distinctive fingerprint as one of the really giant stylists or innovators, but he's good. Uh, you, you enjoy his stuff from the 60s and he reappears. There's like a pretty good album from, I want to say like the 80s. I don't have my, my catalog with me, but, but it's not that he has nothing to say after 1965 or something. It's just that at the very end of his life around 2000, he wasn't in great shape. And I, yeah. I just, I, I don't know what to make of reviews that just seem oblivious to these problems. I mean, you can celebrate the man and talk about the value of the recording, but if you haven't mentioned that he is terribly flat, you're doing the reader a disservice. You know, it's yeah. like, guys, no, I, I, I know he was old. I know it's nice to be nice to old people, but this hurts. It hurts. I, I just, I really felt sad putting this album on because it just it is painful and it does not sound it's not a it's not an attitude thing the way jackie's was it, it's it's just an age thing and of course if your embouchure gets looser you are going to go flatter and well, I, what's I striking to yeah. me is anyway. if you look at like the uh and i was looking at earlier the all about jazz review they they're relatively nice about this album they never mentioned the flatness i'm like really it is how did, yeah. that, how did that how did that come up it's the first thing you notice. I would how say, do you not, yes. How do you not notice that? Anyway. They, they say yeah. his sound has matured into something distinctly his own. No. Well, <laughs> uh, that's one word for it. 
That's the sound not. the skeleton of the hoodie makes when he's ready to take you. That's the way death sounds on the saxophone. It's not, it's not <laughs> Harold's sound. That's death sound. He just yeah, I'm feeling I like this know. slightly better than you did. And, yeah. You know, again, it's not that it is you – know, I don't want to say it's got no value. Obviously, Harold was a, a fine talent. Obviously, his supporting group is quite good. Yeah. It's just – to me, it's like – I just hate to think of somebody who did not know him and then picks this up. Right, Because right. it's just – no, 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 don't, for heaven's sakes, no. You know, listen to you get more bounce or listen to the Fox or listen to those great albums with uh, Brown and Roach. Don't, yeah, don't, don't think this is, this is Harold. This is not, this is not Harold. This is Harold, you know, on the way out. This is, is, is not him at his best. And he's not, it's not kind of a Billy Holiday thing where I just don't feel like he's a player that, that's adding a lot of depth or, or, or the roughness is not adding a kind of emotional fullness. I, I just, I just feel like it just doesn't sound good. Anyway, I, I don't want to keep going on about it, but, but that was yeah. Well, on a happier note, more guitar-y note, this fine recording by Plots. Plots. And they are, you have to you say know, it like that. You have to say Plots. Plots, yes. You know, this, I feel like, is a group that really is off the radar in a way that, you know, Harold Land is a, is a lesser-known jazz player. But, I mean, if you Google him on the web, you'll find things out about him. Plots, I just felt like, boy, there's not much out there. I, I don't know whether they ever were officially reviewed or I just was missing things. I think I maybe found a, a, a web page for the band, so I mean you could oh, find yeah, out no, who was the, in it. The, the band's but... web page does exist, and they have three releases, but they may have gone the way of the industrial jazz group, which also seems not to be operating anymore. Right. So yeah. Dan Rosenboom may be—I mean, he's too talented. Like all these guys, he's an LA or he was an LA player. I don't know if he's relocated. And this was recorded, I think, in Ventura. So, you know, it's 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 by music school guys from the Southland playing together. I don't know if they've reconstituted. Uh, I assume Dan Rosenwood was playing in other units elsewhere. So if you go to his website, he's in the following bands. Burning Ghosts, Dr. Mint, the Daniel <laughs> Rosenboom Quintet, Astral Transference and Seven Dreams, The Books, Plots, Whoops, The Septet, the modern brass quintet, and then of course his solo projects. So yeah, he's busy, and his <laughs> discography is yeah, he's on a lot of stuff. He's he's a busy man. Plots have released a limited edition greatest hits, if you can believe that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I own two out of their three albums, so I feel like I'm missing something by Might not having. Might be a bit redundant for you there. Yeah. I don't have the, the I have the live 2008 album and I have extraordinary renditions. Um, the which by the EP. way has a picture of a tarantula on the front which I think is yes. appropriate. <laughs> um, you have the autographed EP where they cover Nirvana. Okay. Yeah, I don't have I don't have <laughs> the kid which shows a revolver pointed at the viewer. <laughs> which also right. seems appropriate in some way. So uh, talk Good a little for- bit about what this band is trying to do plots here. Well, they describe themselves as a jazz Balkan. <laughs> they describe themselves as a jazz, a Balkan jazz rock outfit. They're, I think they're just having fun. This is just, like I said, this would, this is not going to make the Sophie fought all stars anytime soon. But 
it's four guys having a great deal of fun. This has the same sense of whimsy and pleasure, although perhaps not quite as much whimsy as Industrial Jazz Group. So they're just a heck of a lot of fun. And they actually do sometimes get melodic. It's not sort of thrash jazz. So on the final number, Maria Marika... Maria, Marika, Maishti, Harnu, Korov, Oivusti, Hai Paste, Amidvoje, Pidem, Povodu. Maria, Marika, Maishti, Lutu, Husku, Oivusti, Dovodi, Teplanitski, Nublusku. How would you describe that sort of Latin, Eastern European? There's kind of a, yeah, very a gypsy folksy. vocal. Yeah, yeah, the last, yeah, the last song is very, it's kind of tagged on and it, it's a different feeling. Yes. I would say numbers like Copanitsa, pretty much that's what we're listening to. It's, uh, Copanitsa starts with kind of a guitar drum fill to begin with, and then Rosenbaum comes in on muted trumpet and we're off to the races. The guitar gets a little louder and thrashier and that's the story here. I would have thought initially in my head that fuzzed out electric guitar and trumpet just aren't going to play well together, but I actually kind of like them here. I think they, they play off each other really nicely in many of the songs. And they are what I pay the most attention to, not to diminish the contributions of the other players. Uh, the drummer here is quite good, but it's the guitar and the trumpet that I'm listening to the most. Was that fair to say for you? Or Yeah, and they're kind of done the old stereo ornette coleman quartet style with one in one ear and one of the other it's, exactly it's a, exactly it's weird because every now and then i feel like maybe he's double tracked the trumpet or i think that may be true or maybe I a little double tracking the guitar too so yeah it's got a distinct folk bent and and what mike's talking about when he mentioned sophie is of course great tenor saxophone player sophie fought from indianapolis and the last time we lured the poor thing onto our show we exposed her to todd sikafus's tiny resistors which she her, liked by the about way her she hated album. my yeah, stuff she did. well it's because it's good talked about her <laughs> album three muses and then you kind of opened her trench coat and showed her rabbinical rabbinical school dropouts cosmic tree she, and she did not, not like no yeah. she was not fond of it. i think this is a little bit more polished yes, and accessible yes, than that it. but it's another group that is kind of adding quote-unquote ethnic music yes. and, and folk strains into kind of an intense jazz template i wouldn't call this this is not atonal or uh, free jazz or hardcore jazz but it's it gets a little wild the guitar gets a little distorted there's lots of complicated compound time signatures yes. I, I did kind of feel like the harmonic world of this music was maybe a little bit constricting from tune to tune. I just felt like the scales being used seemed to kind of carry from one song to the next a bit. It's not that they all sounded exactly the same. And of course, some of that may just be my unfamiliarity with the the idiom. If I knew more about Balkan folk music, I'd say, oh, of course, that's such and such. And what a great version of so-and-so they did. But for someone who doesn't know it, there's a little sameness to it. But yeah, I, I listen mainly to the trumpet player and the guitar player. And they're both fine. I don't know that they've unlocked their inner jazz geniuses by playing this music. I kind of agree it's for fun. Yeah. Um, and the old canard we bring out, and then I'm going to discuss a little while down the line here, it might have been better live. I, I do feel like in some ways the nature of folk music, it's, it's kind of repetitive. It tends to be, not always in this case, but, you know, fairly hummable and simple. And it, lots of energy. And I think some of that, it does just translate better to 
a room full of sweaty people rather than a man alone with his, his player and his headphones. It's not necessarily music you're supposed to bore into and think about its layers as much as enjoy with a beer in your hand. But yeah, I, mean, I think it was well done. Yeah, I I do think the the frame of reference here probably is to if you are familiar with industrial jazz group would be to say it's industrial jazz group but a little more serious. Yeah, even though it has a folksier bent, it's a little more. I don't detect any. It's still playful, but it's not. Yeah. It doesn't have that complete whimsical edge. You right. know, Absolutely. Um, they give a shit. Yeah, it's, it's not postmodern. It's not snarky. It's not kind of a collage of things or it's not montage. earnest in a sort of urgent please pay attention no. to me way they're just they're they're very talented the guitar player is quite good and they're having a great deal of fun and it rocks you could drive very fast on the highway listening to this yeah um, you probably right. couldn't read the newspaper to this but you wouldn't want <laughs> to and of course another point of reference that we've mentioned many times before is john zorn's group yes uh, Masada, you know, where they play mm-hmm. the various uh, Jewish folk melodies. And I do feel like, well, that resonated. It's got a lot of children or half-cousins or bastard sons out there of people that saw that approach and said, you know, let's try this. Um, right. I'd I say the difference here between that project, to, to interrupt for one second, would be the guitar yeah. players got more wattage or at least is allowed to stretch more than any guitar player is allowed to stretch in Masada. Masada is a more buttoned-down yeah. affair generally speaking not and that mark ribot i think plays in it from time to time i can't remember who else is in it because it, the membership shifts but they don't shred very often and this guitar player shreds just about every song right yeah so. he does and, and I, yeah, i've only heard masada with dave douglas on trumpet i don't think i've heard the versions with guitar so they're yeah, like I, sextet versions and string yeah. sets sextet versions so yeah, yeah. Their complete works would be a, a hefty box indeed and yeah, yeah many many discs i actually have the i have the 50th i don't know if you know about this but i have john zorn's 50th birthday celebration and for a month in new york city Different groups associated with John Zorn played his music. We didn't hold it in Missouri. I'm just kidding. Yeah, of course it was and New York they, City. Yeah, yes. yeah, sorry, of course. And they recorded each night. And so wow. uh, I have the three-disc set of John Zorn's 50th birthday celebration. But I think there are like 30 discs total for that event. Just, that sounds more like Zorn. I'm like three Just discs, for that on. event. Yeah. I believe it. Now, oh, I believe it. Yeah. Sorry, um, I got us off track there. Anyway, that's okay. No, I was thinking. Yeah, I, I I couldn't believe that John would only have three discs. It's like no, it must be for my 30. birthday. I got a box set of John Denver. Did you know that? I got a box set too for Christmas. We'll talk about that later. Yeah, I I did know that. And yeah, you're you're getting Mike now on the rebound. You're getting a recovered Mike. The lost versions of our attempted podcast. We're going to try to resurrect next time. He was a hurt puppy. He was suffering. He had been exposed mm-hmm. to too much Bob at once. He was he was John, kind of, not Bob. You uh, keep going Gilligan on me. What is your problem? Because I just don't give a fuck about <laughs> either one. You gave enough of a fuck to buy me the box set, you asshole. It was How an act of love. That? It's an act of love. Yep. Mike has so much John That's Denver. That's your idea of love. Here comes the box set, Mike. Grit it's, your teeth. Whatever your sexual preference, don't don't have sex with a box set of Bob Denver. It, it's bad for John everybody. John Denver, what is your problem? <laughs> or Bob Seger. Or... <laughs> okay yes john denver john denver the muppets the guy with the little wire rim round glasses and he was a talented man and mike enjoyed some of his work but he did not want that much of it and lesson learned 
<laughs> I, I'm sending back that that uh, that box set of uh, Kansas. Uh, I just thought, yeah, maybe too much. All right, okay. Anyway, I I don't know that I'm gonna run out and look for more plots, but it was you know it was fine. It was it was fun, and it was kind of fun to hear him shred. But yeah, I I, I Ivo Papa something or other this clarinetist. I remember reading this write up about how fantastic he was, and he's an amazing clarinet player. I'm sorry, I cannot remember his last name. I just can't. I, I don't have my database. But he did an album of kind of he's a clarinetist and he's an amazing technician and it was jazz based on these folk forums. I'm not sure they were strictly Balkan, but it was kind of in the same wheelhouse. And I realized as impressed as I was by the, the compound time signatures and everything, for whatever reason, what I'm looking for is, is not in that folk jazz hybrid very often. So, and that's just personal. I mean, nothing. All right. Well, anyway, moving on to the winners, two of the winners, we're, we're slowly, I know it's 2017, but by gum, we're going to get through these, these things. The 2015 poll of the Downbeat Critics, one of the winning albums was another Tom Harrell project. I feel like we did one of those maybe last year. Yeah, and, with uh, Mark Turner. Yeah, and this is why, dear listeners, this year we've pledged, and Mike is already making inroads, to kind of pick interesting, uplifted 2016 albums, but not commit ourselves to one or another of these lists. Just kind of try to track down things that some critic or other decided were worthy of mention and honor. but to And avoid then we'll decide for you if they were right. Well, we always do that. We always bitch and moan. But, but you know, try to pick things like, again, love Tom Harrell, love this album. But having done two or three of them recently, I don't want to do yet another one, even if he made a brilliant album last year. It's just right. it's time to talk about somebody else. So we're going to do that, pick things that we, we want to track down in here. And we still may bitch and moan because we're bastards, but it, it won't be because we're on this narrow focus. I'm, this list overall was fine, but we don't need to do two more albums by what's his name on tenor charles lloyd you know it, it's, it's no. just kind of silly yeah. it, it just we need to we do need to do all choose. of wadato leo smith's national no parts. no you motherfucker no <laughs> God. Yeah, we talked about this earlier i may put a clip in from it he is he's just he 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 released an album people called our national parks and you know what i'm gonna bet it sounds like every other fucking leo wadato smith album Nothing whatsoever. Oh, I can just hear. I can just hear Yellowstone. Yellowstone. I mean, yeah. Can you name more than two national parks, motherfucker? Yeah, the Shades of Death. Oh yeah, <laughs> we've got the Shades of Death Park in our area and Turkey Run because Indiana names its national parks with some pretty cool fucking names. Uh, I don't know if he did either one of those. So he's at this point, he's literally just double flipping off all the awards committees, daring them not to give him another fucking prize or some other thematic album they listen to once, get a headache, and decide if we give him money, he'll go away. And I, and I love him. I mean, he's really talented, but my God, these emails. It's smart as hell. I mean, he's brilliant. figured out a, it's a, he's a genius. We're just jealous we haven't figured out a way to monetize it for ourselves. That's he's all. He's sticking it to the man. He's like, this one's about, and he's got like what? It's like Trivial Pursuit, the deck. He throws it in the air, and once it landed on Martin Luther King, and this time the fucking card came up was like Jellystone, and it's a question <laughs> about Yogi Berra. And yeah, it just, it's, and it's like, and they'll believe it too, the stupid fucks, and then he calls it. <laughs> 
No, so like we'll know that he's record. really flipping everyone off if like the next one is like America's Great Golf Courses. You yes. Know? <laughs> oh my God. You know a song called Augusta. It's called Pebble The Hardest Beach. Nine. The Hardest <laughs> Nine. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The planet. Sandy Hook. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. That's all he needs. He just needs like a group of names. So. But but not until he's completed the next album. Then he's gonna go looking for one with a dartboard. Mickey Mouse characters. You know, Pluto. <laughs> that's right. There we go. Oh, Mini Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> okay. Oh my God. So, I. If if there is a god in the universe, and there probably isn't, we won't do America's National Parks, which means probably sometime this year we're going to guess again, motherfucker. <laughs> but right now we can talk about Tom Harrell's first impressions. This is a unusual ensemble. He's got his usual working quintet, but he's thrown in a flautist, cello player, violinist, or viola. I'm not sure which. Who's in his quartet, by the way? Just was that Escoffery and Ask the Internet Boyfriend. I don't have shit with me. Um, okay, I'm looking at it. I think it's Wayne Escoffery on on tenor reeds. and flute or reeds. Yeah, okay. yeah. Danny Grissett on piano, Ugana Okekwo on bass, and Jonathan Blake on drums. Okay. None of those names mean anything to me. Although I've listened to a bunch of Tom Harrell, so I feel and really you know, stupid right now. I like them, but I gotta say. Myers were caught by the arrangements. There was at least one like violin solo I liked pretty well. And Tom, nothing wrong with the tenor so- solos or the, you know, but I don't know that, or the rhythm section, they're fine. But yeah, I don't know that they're playing ever kind of grab me by the collar. So what he's done is taken some compositions by Ravel and Debussy, or as I like to call them, Debussy, and arranged them for a jazz group and then thrown in a couple of his own meditations. And I, I what do you think of this one? Well, the first thing I have to say is, my God, Tom Harrell is 69, and he is at the top of his motherfucking game. That guy still has it. He is fleet as hell and crisp. He sounds great. Yeah, he sounds great. I, I mean, he's been around now for a long time, and at 69, there's nothing wrong with that man's lip. He is still able to play at an extremely high level. I don't detect any slippage here from the previous album that we reviewed by him with Mark Turner, the name of which I forget, but we loved that album. And there's no slippage. This is fantastic. I, his playing here is amazing. And I think the uh, saxophone player gets up to some really nice things here in counterpoint to Harold. But Harold's the focus for me. I, I just I can't get enough of him at this point. He is one of those elder statesmen who is not slowing down and seems to be getting better or at least branching out in interesting ways so that he's not doing the same goddamn thing. And number to number, I find him really engaging on every song on this album. Well, Pat. Tell us about tell us okay. about first impressions. I'll shut up. Yeah, it's that it is a quintet, but with additional instruments. He is a very plummy sound. I don't know if he's playing flugelhorn. It just sounds like it, but it's a very rounded, clear sound. He always has that, doesn't he? He's always had that sort of round, yeah, plummy sound, like Art Farmer, except Farmer is playing a flugelhorn much of the time. Right. And I was listening to uh, "Sail Away" by Harold. Um, yeah recently and that is a really that's a real that is a 10 20 years old now yeah that is a really excellent album the compositions are just kind of jaw-droppingly good everything about that record is fantastic yeah, this one what he tries to do is weird it is not if you're thinking of impressionism as gil evans with miles kind of stuff the drifting clouds of say the title track to miles ahead that's not really what harold's interested in he's not 
doing a lot of impressionistic drifting harmonies, lots of ambiguous floating songs. What he does is he will kind of have the group perform a melody from one of these impressionistic tunes, and they do tend to be, the ones I've looked up at least, tunes. He's not doing, you know, extended art poems or something, tone poems by these guys. He's doing like a, a song for a recital, an art song, or maybe a, a, an instrumental tune that you would play, and the performances of them tend to be three or four minutes long. They're not, you know, symphonies or something. And he'll have the ensemble drift through the melody. Sometimes he doesn't appear, and at some point, several of them, he then kind of creates a vamp that kind of slowly coalesces out of this more arty music and then starts playing on the vamp. They tend to be fine vamps. Overall, I mean, it's fairly seamless. It's not awkwardly done. He's a very smart, not only is Harold a very fine player, but he's also a good composer and a good arranger. And everybody sounds good. It's It might be a little bit soft-edged for you. You know, you might want to start with earlier Harold first if you don't like the plush. Not that it's, it's not sugary, but it, it is, again, it, it's not going for that kind of vague, pillowy, a thousand tints of purple orchestration thing, but... By the nature of the ensemble and the nature of the melodies, it is, you know, somewhat mellow. I'd recommend it. I I think it's a good project. I guess at the end of the day, my take is this is interesting material for him to work with. I think he finds a very practical, useful, and and enjoyable solution to using these materials. I don't know that's revelatory. I don't know that I feel like, my God, why has no one ever done this before? I hope he makes ten more albums of the Impressionists. I feel like, yeah, this worked. This worked pretty well. But I don't know that in getting the tunes to work, I feel like they're that much more valuable material to him than, I don't know, something out of the gas would be or something out of the 70s pop rock thing would have been. I think he could have done equally good work with Carpenter's tunes or, you know, <laughs> you know I just, it, and I mean, sure. it, so it's neat. I mean, I, and again, we cannot overemphasize enough that you may not have heard of Tom Harrell. Tom Harrell will never be the trumpet player that the jazz camp kids are talking about. He's not a pyrotechnician. He doesn't play faster than anyone living. He's not a showman. In fact, he suffers from a debilitating, or not really debilitating, but a serious mental illness, and he looks very uncomfortable when he's around people. He is. But he is a fantastic musician, and if you give him a chance, he's going to get under your skin, and you're going to realize, oh, he's really good. I mean, he's yeah. he is very talented, and, and his best the, stuff you know, is really good. At the rate good. he's going, I think he's going to kind of rewrite the canon. I mean, he's just going to have to be kind of be written in, if he hasn't been already. As it's kind of a late a, search. A, as a major voice. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of making a case in his late 60s and 70s that he is a major voice. And, you know, the trip is, I, I think, even stronger than this. And, yeah, he is just putting out a lot of really strong product. To say, not every, you know, I've got some albums by him that leave me a little cold. But if you look at something like Sail Away or... Uh, I've got an early one that's kind of electric and funky, which is kind of amazing to think about. But, you know, he, he goes back. He, he played with Phil Woods early on. Yeah, he's got an impressive set of work. He is somebody that to be reckoned with. And I, I don't think people are going to know it. Obviously, you can't. He's this bearded gnome. I mean, he's not small, but, you know, he's tall, skinny, heavily bearded, 
white-haired dude who never looks at the camera because he never looks at anybody, as far as I can tell, eye to eye. And you're not going to sell him. He's not pretty. I mean, he's not bad-looking, but he's not, you know, he doesn't have this kind of physical charisma. He's no Chris Body, but uh, he's no Chris Body. <laughs> he can really fucking play. So, yeah, don't sleep on him. Give his stuff a try. And this is another good one. I... I'd say if of the two of them, I'm probably going to trip first. But Yeah, I think trip. Oh, of the man. two, I mean, now I'm talking about number five. Number five is awesome. I think it's terrific. Four-star album. But yeah, I still take trip over that. Maybe because just Turner, we said this before, Turner and he play really well together. And, and Turner is somebody who, boy, he is context dependent. He, yep. he can make some annoying music. I think I told the long story about seeing him at the Chicago Jazz Fest and thinking, oh, we've got the one I don't like here. I'm not enjoying this at all. And he's an amazingly talented player. But anyway, in, in Tom's company, he blossoms, and it's just great. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's a good one. Yeah, but it, it, basically what Harold's doing right now at this stage is making four-star albums or five-star albums. It seems like those are the kind of the options, his settings right now, and that's pretty impressive to say about somebody of his age. And right. they're not all the same. I mean, he's not in a rut. He's not no. making another quintet album based on a bunch of standards. He is an ambitious guy. He's making so, post-bop modal albums that are engaging and that aren't snooze fests some modal albums you're sort of like it's an ecm nap right but, yeah. but he doesn't ever do that it seems like his his modal jazz is always engaging it's always got something going on and uh, he's got a lot of bounce in his step at this age <laughs> Saved in for a penny, in for a pound. I think we both listened to this. And we, we, we need to take a bathroom break. Okay. Help yourself. Yes. I'll be right back. Yeah, well, so the, here's a question for you, podcast listeners. We, we just took a break. We're, we're getting older. Prostates aren't what they used to be. And, uh, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and several of them will say, well, now it's time for a break. And, and you know, at least one actually has advertising on it, so I understand they need to insert the ad. But others will just play some music, and then they'll start talking again. And my thought is, you know, you guys could go to a restaurant and get a meal. You could have sex, whatever, but we don't need to know that. Why are you telling me it's time for a break? I mean, I don't, you know, I'm just listening to like 30 seconds of music and then hearing you again. It's not really a break for me. You could just edit that bit out. Why? I, I don't know. Is it like, okay, now you take your headphones off and rest a bit. Put them back on. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't understand the rhetorical purpose of it for the listener. I understand that we're all human and sometimes we can't talk for two hours straight, but I, I don't know. Let us know if, if the reason for the podcast break, unless, of course, advertising. For a while, I made up ads, but I've run out of energy to talk about big boy headphones. So maybe at some later date, I'll make up another product and we can sit, stick those in. Well, there. one of these days will be discovered, and uh, God knows by who, probably by a pharmaceutical company advertising prostate medicine. And, there you go. Yeah, then we can take our, our pee break and have, you know. There you uh, go. 
whatever, Pfizer, talk about, do you have to go to the bathroom often? Sadly, this will be long after our deaths, but <laughs> Perhaps it will you be need discovered. Pinot more. Uh, a new, there you go. <laughs> a new drug. Available in cork and Do not forms. use Pinot more if you experience any of the following symptoms. In an ocean or in a glass, cool water is such a gas. So anyway, our last piece is by a guy who's probably himself taking the occasional pee break, Henry Threadgill. He's <laughs> broke 70. And, is he uh, 70 now? Yeah, 70-something. And he released a double album by his long-running unit, Zuid. And I'm pretty sure that's the way it's said because I just listened to a podcast with Henry on it, and it was very cool. And he so, said Zuid? Yeah. Um, okay. That's so good to I guess, know. I, I guess it's we, right. Can we just go on record right now and order all jazz men and women with difficult, difficult to pronounce names and difficult to pronounce groups to do a podcast and pronounce Absolutely. their names? Can Paul Motion please, please make it clear if, if it's Modian dead, or I Motion? Don't know. We'll have a seance and ask. Him. We, we really, we really need to know these things. It would be nice if people just clarify because you don't want to be the boob who says botch instead of Bach. So. The crystal ball will sort of clear up. He'll say, "Motiani, you idiots." The Y is silent, or never mind. It's just not printed. It's okay. The, I don't. The know. O is a soft O. Modian. There we go. There we go. Anyway, we've actually talked about an earlier album by this ensemble, which a number of critical outlets have mentioned is his longest running. And Threadgill, as we mentioned before, headed up the fantastic jazz trio Air back in the '70s, kind of an offshoot of the AACM. And my Probably the group I got the deepest into was the Sextet, which of course yeah. is comprised of seven people. The difficulty with that group is their most accomplished work was on RCA Novus, and they literally printed the CD and then started burning the molds in the warehouses and shutting down the operation. Like it's like it's off the assembly line. Okay, destroy everything. And so they're in print for like a hot minute. And so that's hard to track down. It's hard to find the sextet recordings. And then Very, Very Circus, and that has remained in circulation, another group. And he's been in other projects, but he's actually a musician who has had groups. People that work with him over two or three or more albums, fairly steady personnel, a distinct concept of the kind of people in the ensemble. I think Very, Very Circus might have had two tubas. He's somebody who has assembled groups and given them names and they've earned their names unlike most made-up jazz group names i mean they're actual ensembles and this one is his longest running and he calls it an epic in the sense that there are two short pieces and four lengthy pieces and he his version of it is is that each piece features one instrumentalist in depth uh, he is himself never featured but he plays a lot on the recordings Though if you listen to any one of those longer pieces, most everybody gets to solo. So it's it's not yeah. clear to me. Like It's not like a concerto by Duke Ellington where it's like, okay, this is Rex Stewart's piece. And he's going to do Rex Stewart stuff. And it's going to frame him. I mean, it, it's, it's much more complicated than that. I just ran across today a podcast where he is interviewed for about 45 minutes by a woman named Helga. H-E-L-G-A. If you look up the Helga podcast... Just that one word, you'll find that she interviews various musicians, and he's one of them. And he is fascinating. He is of a philosophical bent. He's got things to say. She's a good interviewer. She's not great. And she begins with this long biographical intro that I don't, or autobiographical intro that I'm not excited about. But, you know, it's okay. It's just, she was a big friend and fan of Butch Morris's, I guess, and that's kind of her connection uh-huh. with Redgill. But anyway, 
yeah, he kind of takes this metaphor of a house and what's in the house, and he just uses it about five different ways that all make sense. He's not like an Ornette Coleman where you're like, okay, I am just taking a lot of drugs. This makes no sense. I don't know. The metaphors are not of this earth. You can kind of follow what he's saying, but it's he's got a different way of looking at things. He's a very thoughtful guy. So I really recommend listening to this. It's, it's a neat discussion. If you're interested in the man and his art, he is a thoughtful uh, speaker, and he's also very down-to-earth, and as you can imagine from his titles, good sense of humor. So I had some trouble. I mean, I enjoyed this. I don't know that I could tell a huge difference from the other Zooid projects I've heard. I liked it, but I don't know. It seemed like more Zooid. What, what do you think of it? Yeah, that was my problem here, and it's not really a bad problem to have. So the other Zooid that we talked about was um, This Brings Us To and Tomorrow Sunny The Revelry, if I'm remembering correctly. So the, just the previous albums to this is what we had spent time on. And we raved about them. We thought they were awesome. And I feel like this is a, just slightly less awesome. And it's hard for me to put my finger on why this is slightly less awesome because a lot of it is the same forces deployed. And as on those previous discs, Threadgill is someone who knows how to use silence. He knows how to use space. And it's a lovely touch on on these albums. I think maybe, and this is a stupid criticism to make, but on the epics, the four epics, the very length is daunting. It's hard for me to kind of get a shape or a grasp or a hold of them whereas if memory serves on this brings us to those cuts never got over 10 minutes and, and the whole project was like 40 45 i mean it was not one of these 70 yeah. long cds and, and, it was and this tight. is a this is an armful and tomorrow sunny the revelry is similar there's there's a one 10 minute number on there but most of the stuff it comes in at 45 minutes total and I think it's the very sprawling nature of this that's it's so demanding that I found it a little bit exhausting. So the four numbers, all of which run 17 to 19 minutes, the four epic numbers just wore me out. When I listened to them, it was really hard to concentrate. Like I had to put everything down. This is not background music. I couldn't. <laughs> I mean, if it is background, then I'm not paying any attention to it. Like, I'm just ignoring it. It's either you pay attention or you don't. And if you pay attention, I mean, you just have to kind of bore in uh, on it. And uh, I find it exhausting. I just thought if I had to listen to a whole evening of this, I would be done. I would be, you know, just spent by the end of it. Um, uh, whereas on those earlier discs, the numbers are a little bit shorter, a little more concentrated, um, and maybe that helps the listener or it helped this listener attend a little more carefully to the interplay of the various forces at work. It's similar forces here, right? Tuba slash trombone player, guitar, thread gill playing various wind instruments. There's a drummer. I don't think there's a bass on this one. There's a yeah, cello player. Who is gone, right? Yeah, cello player. Um, and cello's often bowed, sometimes plucked. Uh, we get both iterations here. So yeah, but there's no total ensemble playing where everyone's playing the same thing at the same time. There's you know shifting kaleidoscope of forces at work, and different people come in at different times and play with each other. The pace varies. It's really hard to describe, and this is sort of the deep end of avant-garde jazz, and this is the deep end, I would argue, of Henry Threadgill. I found this challenging and really hard to concentrate on, so I can only imagine what it would do for a beginner. So, you know, I found myself gravitating to the two shorter numbers, frankly. 
much easier to wrap my mind around than these big sprawling 18-minute epics which for Wadato Leo Smith that's just a warm-up but uh for Threadgill that's that's a long time well uh, I think the difference is is that Wadato you feel like you're in a world largely of abstraction you aren't anticipating closure or explanation you know you're not in suspense for where is this going to go or what does this all mean, or how does it fit together? It's people reacting to one another in real time, for the most part. And I know there's some writing, you know, but it sounds like it's pretty much spontaneous. Threadgill, he is a, a rare composer where you know, I can listen to a lot of jazz and have a rough idea. It's not that I could do it, but I kind of know how it's done and how it works. I mean, sometimes it's like, okay, they're just playing on one chord or two chords. Even Steve Coleman, to some degree, it's like, okay, I'm kind of familiar with this system. You know, I've heard it. Right. When I listen to Zooid, I just don't know how it works. I can't imagine what the paper in front of these musicians looks like. I have no idea when they're playing something that's written out, and more of it than I, I'm guessing we might think has been written out. I mean, he definitely, he identifies himself. He's a composer. You know, he is somebody who composes. He's very comfortable talking about this. He's great. He's like, at three years old, I, I had to learn how to play piano because I heard Boogie Woogie. And so he starts trying to copy the Boogie Woogie he hears on radio. But he said, at the same time, I wanted to know the how. I didn't want to be able to just to play it. I wanted to know how it was made. And then when I went out in the street and looked at a house, I wanted to know how the house was made. How was it wired? How was it put you know, it's just like mm. So this is a guy with an analytical bent and a guy that is comfortable with thinking systematically and he's got a system here there are like some kind of rule set that he uses to generate this this music and you can hear it and sense it he, he talked very vehemently about what really hurt us was people called us free jazz you know butch morris and himself and people in the aacm and he's like no we were never free jazz we that was not what we were doing that was complete mislabeling and misunderstanding of us and yeah this is i i don't think anybody who's familiar with jazz if you played it for him and think oh that's free jazz I mean, it doesn't sound to me like free jazz at all right but i can't explain what the rules are <laughs> i don't right. get them now i didn't find it and you know i read one review that said this is actually kind of relaxing and accessible i, I think the main thing with those longer pieces if you're looking at them as a whole as a unit yeah i think your mind's going to bend because there is so much information and so much through composition and so many shifts that you really can't I at least can't contain it. Maybe Mozart could figure it out or some kind of musical genius, but not me. But if you just listen to it moment to moment, I, it just feels like to me a series of episodes that include the, the stuff one likes from Zuid. You know, these, as you say, these shifting groups of instruments, this beautifully recorded acoustic space. Yeah. Liberty Elman, the guitar player, does a production. And they are some of the most gorgeous sounding albums in modern jazz. I mean, they just... it. I just you just put them on, crank them up, and it's just like crystalline purity of these instruments coming at you. Just delightful in that sense. But yeah, I mean to say, I think if your if the project is I'm going to unravel this, I just fucking can't. I mean I like yeah. it, 
I, I like the method. And this one, I got to say, the first time I heard it, I had that kind of think, feeling, maybe he's taking this too far. This hmm. is this is going on a bit much. Maybe this is too much Zooid. And then as I listened to it more, I kind of decided I liked it probably about as much as the other ones. But yeah, it's, it's 80 minutes instead of 40 or 35. And that was something I treasured about his projects is like, they're really cool and they're done. You know, he's, he's right. like, this is what I want to tell you about right now. 35 minutes, 40 minutes. Okay. Now go absorb it. And another comment he made was, she was asking him, you repeat this figure over and over again. He's like, I don't know how many times he's told her. I don't remember how many times I did it. And then he said, and that's different. If you can do that this number of times live, but on a recording, I think what he was saying is your bond with the, your contract with the listener is different. And because people are so distracted in the modern age, you can't. And so some performances are meant, he said, these performances were meant as chamber performances. Hmm. He said, you can never play this music outside, for instance. And I assume he wouldn't find it appropriate to like a festival or a, a, a huge concert venue. This is for like a contained area. And he hmm. thinks that this is the kind of music that gets played there, whereas like a different ensemble might go a different place. Now, I mean, you can say some of this might be obfuscation or he's just playing, I don't know. But I would agree that it's a music that is asking a fair amount of you and I, I don't know. I, I tend to like it, and I do tend to feel like when I'm listening to it is he has found a way of bringing five instruments together in, in something that seems to me pretty close to wholly distinctive. I can't think of somebody else who does this. I don't think anybody else could if they wanted to. Hmm. And that impresses me in as much as I also like the results. I mean, you know, it, you could probably find certain things to do with five musicians that couldn't be reproduced, but I wouldn't want to. You know, I mean, it's like the results are terrible. I don't like them for me anyway. But yeah, for this, I, I like it, but I don't get it. And I like the, the kind of funky rhythms. I mean, it always seems somehow tonal. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like they're just in space. Albert Eiler has no place here. No. But I'm man, I love, I just love to see the music these guys are handed. Cause he isn't just saying, riff baby, this is not that. This is, he, he said, you know, in this project, it's fairly controlled. There are plans there. There are spaces for improvisation. It's not all written out or something, but, but what, what the rules are, what the music looks like, I just can't imagine. So anyway, I'm sorry to go on and on, but. <clears throat> That's all right. I, I mean, like I said, my verdict is largely the same. I prefer the previous Zoo discs to this. I like this a lot. I found this more exhausting. And yeah. the chamber comment makes a lot of sense in that regard. This is the kind of music you'd have to concentrate on. And I could totally see the idea of it being chamber rather than sort of, you know, concert, outdoor, festival music. Because, yeah, it's demanding. All of Zuid is demanding in a certain level. But this, especially the length, really seemed to put a lot of pressure yeah. on at least this listener. And I like it. But it's like he upped the contract with the listener with this with this recording. It's like, yeah, we're going to ask you to, to pay a little more attention than usual. And I'd say, yeah, I'd go with the earlier Zooid projects. If you can possibly track down, I, I still, at some point, we, I want to do Ragbush and all because I think it's oh, yeah. a seminal album. I just think it's a fantastic. But any of those later sex hit albums, I think, are pretty fantastic. Air is a freer project. But there is a lot of humor, and there's certainly form, and their uh, album where they do Jelly Roll Morton songs. Really, any I, I've grown to love pretty much all their output. So there's a lot of different places, and I think Very Very Circus in some ways is probably the most hipster accessible of all the stuff. I, mm. I, I don't know that's my favorite of his projects, but it, it seemed to get, I think Bill Laswell maybe was backing at least one of those recordings, and it got a little bit wider 
consciousness. But there's a lot out there. He's got a long, fruitful career. It's not like he's cranking out an album every year or something. But yeah, he said it was like, I went to New York and I went back to Chicago because it's like, I'm not going to be somebody's sideman. He's like, until he had enough power that he could run the show on his own terms, he didn't want to go to New York, basically. Hmm. He's like... I'm yeah. I want to be, and it, it is. I you know he does appear in in like David Murray projects and a couple of mm-hmm. places, but for the most part, he's been a band leader since late '60s, early '70s. You know, right. he's somebody who has been creating his own universe for a very long time, and somebody to explore. But yeah, I would not, I would not choose this as as the entry point to to any phase of his career. And you wonder but, a little bit is is the sheer length and ambition of it again encouraging uh, critical accolades a little bit? I don't know. Don't you kind of kick yourself? Remember we were in uh, Chicago with Rachel Bowman. God, I don't know how many years ago this was, 15 or 20 years ago. And we could have – yeah, probably 20, 25 years ago. And we could have gone to see him at a club. But I think the the cost was uh, 40 bucks at the door, which at that time was astronomical. And now I'm like, I couldn't have paid 40? Really? Literally, we probably couldn't have at that point. We we probably couldn't have. But now I'm like – you had two kidneys. There you <laughs> go. Why couldn't we have like manned up and somehow gone to see him that night? I feel night? like I, I maybe caught some of very very circus at a museum somewhere. Mm. And again, I I like most of what Henry does. Not every single you know, but but as an artist, he's just he's he's a sweet spot for me. Probably not my favorite, and I don't know that two electric guitars and two tubas were right for that space uh, acoustically. But yeah, if you ever get a chance. Catch his performances. He is a hip dude. And uh, this this podcast, again, somebody I never heard of in terms of the hostess, who I don't know if I'll track on other things or not, but Helga, it's a neat interview. This is not somebody who's like going to go on Jimmy Kimmel's show or something. You know? right. it, this is not just PR speak. This is somebody thinking about his life. I mean, he talks about, yeah, I was riding shotgun and Nam, And, you know, it's like, okay. Nice. Uh, he's had some life experiences. Yeah. And he's like, there you have to be aware or you just won't be. The house will be gone. It, it was insightful. I, I like that. Cool. All right. Uh, any pop matters on your mind? There's nothing recently acquired because I'm on the road visiting family. So I haven't gotten any new stuff. I did re-listen to recently. I guess I'll sing their praises. I don't know if I've ever talked about them before. The two-disc set, I don't know if I got it from you or I got it some other place. I may have talked about it on the podcast before. A Japanese punk trio called the 5678s. It's an all-girl punk trio. Not and me, they, but okay. They sing in English. <laughs> And they don't pronounce English very well. So when they sing their classic single, Bomb the Twist, it's Bomb the Twist. You know, they can't. And they're fucking hilarious. And they are, they're they're like a thrash punk band from the 80s, late 80s and 90s. So like they, they have this sort of throwback aesthetic where they look like they're, you know, wearing cocktail dresses from the 50s. But it's three Japanese chicks singing in English that they mispronounce terribly. And 
they rock out. And so this disc that I have by them, it's a two disc set. No, I think it's one disc set. Um, all the songs are about three minutes long called, <laughs> called bomb the rocks early, okay. early days singles. And, uh, if you haven't heard them, you should, they're just a shitload of fun. I think, unfortunately, Quentin Tarantino heard them at some point and put them one of their songs on a soundtrack and catapulted them to an odd sort of fame. But I think they're the shit. And I love to play them before lectures for students because it really wakes them the fuck up at nine in the morning when you hear these three Japanese women scream at the top of the lungs, ah, bomb the twist. And then they they're pretty awesome and they have songs like my boyfriend from outer space and they're just there and there's a when they do play a slow song it's um really obnoxious so they have this one song called three cool chicks three cool cats three cool they can't say cool sisters say cool three cool chicks i mean their mispronunciation is terrible they probably speak with cultured Oxford accents, and they're probably like, well, sell life. this act, though we have to do the English. Oh, so. you'll, you'll know them. There's some car commercial that uses one of their songs, that, that woo-hoo, you know that song? You know, I have not seen a commercial for probably 10 years, so I am out of the loop. And I, in some ways, every now and then it'll be like in a restaurant or something, they'll have a television. I'm like, oh, that's what I'm missing. And I, you know, sometimes it's like, that's kind of interesting, or that's really disturbing, but I'm so clueless. It's, I'm missing the monoculture. Damn. Yeah. So yeah, they they got back into rotation just before I left town. I drove across the country, and oh my god, they're a, they're a blast. Think um think the tubes or maybe the cramps, except by angry atonal Japanese punk chicks. That's really the frame of reference here. Oh, the cramps, but atonal. Thanks. That that's helping a lot. Oh my well, I'm, god. I'm, well, yeah, well, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. I can actually listen to music while I podcast, and I sometimes will will play snippets of what we're talking about in the background, so I can remind myself. And so I'm listening to Bomb the Twist, and I realized I shouldn't have said they sing. They just <laughs> they just scream. They just it's scream. just Bomb the Twist. Ah! You know. <laughs> They're really a lot of fun. Like when you hear them, you're like, this is incredibly stupid and just a great deal of fun. So, I look forward to the duet with Adele. That'll be great. Oh, yes. That would be awesome. They should back Adele on her next album. Oh, they would beat Adele yes. to death with their guitars. Probably. They just beat her to death and then eat her. I don't yeah. know. She's a, she's, a, yeah, she's a grounded chick. She could probably take them on. Whenever, we'll I hear Adele, whenever I hear Adele, I always feel like saying, oh, Adele, it's I, okay. Eat another sandwich. I'm sorry. Kick your ass. She's gonna kick your ass. I recently also listened to Laura Marling's short movie. If they darn themselves with crystals to make them look sharp, sleep with their hand on a pistol, but they're afraid of the dark. Well, if it wakes you. It has been known to you Don't be alarmed Darkness can't do you harm Fear will hurt you Why do you like this shit? You know, I gotta say short movie is not a very good record. I, I like... Uh, and how can you tell it from her other albums? Oh, it's quite different. You with yeah, these yeah. wispy blondes moaning. I, I just don't get it. Yeah. Okay. That, that's a, that's an image. I think we're all going to have to erase now. Wispy blondes moaning. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'll do my best. Yeah. 
wipe, wipe, wipe away. Well, I was on the couch and the TV show stopped and the cat got on my lap, which is a very rare and special occurrence. And I had 15 minutes before the podcast. So I just picked what was next on Netflix. And I listened to the first 15 minutes of Garfunkel and Oates special. You know, the two girls that sing and they name themselves after the sidekicks. I did not know that. You know what? Don't bother to look them up. They're, they're kind of cute, but their songs, it, it's, they're supposed to be funny songs, but one, they aren't songs. They're just kind of riffs. I mean, they don't have melodies or structure to speak of. They're not two, very cute either, frankly. All right, fine. Whatever. They're cuter than I am. And they don't. Okay, I'm looking at the cover of their album, Slippery When Moist, and they are cute. Okay. That's. <laughs> Great. Whatever, Mike. The, the podcast waits upon your judgment of their attractiveness. They just explain a situation, and they throw in a little profanity or the occasional pop reference, but they don't make wit out of it. They just say, you see this person, and you don't remember their name, and they're probably really boring, and that's the reason you can't remember their name. And it's like, okay, but you're just explaining <laughs> how you feel about this. You're saying it really fast, so that's kind of funny, and occasionally there's a cute rhyme, but a, a witty song would make music out of this, make an actual memorable tune, and, and somehow encapsulate in vivid language this experience, rather than just kind of in demotic language, explaining it. So anyway, I, I just, I never heard them before. I knew they existed. I uh, almost went to see a show of theirs in Indianapolis once, but did not work out, and they're harmless. Well, uh, one of the right. reviewers on Rate Your Music of their second album called Slippery When Moist uh, <laughs> says, not funny, not cute and really sullying the fine oats name. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. What about Ouch. Garfunkel? What about Ouch. Garfunkel? <laughs> that choir boy tenor gets me to cry every time. <laughs> well, I kind of like the, an album that has, I'm looking at their first album, which has great song titles. Weed yeah. Card, You, Me, and Steve, Gay Boyfriend, Pregnant Women Are Smug. Yeah, yeah, that Fuck one you. again. Fuck You, that sounds like a good song. Sex with Ducks. This party okay. took a turn for the douche. I think I need to find this album. Okay, you you enjoy that. Uh, you have been warned, but you enjoy it that. It can't be it can't be as thrilling as Bomb the Twist, but it. it can I, I I doubt it will be. And that concludes episode one hundred and seven of the Jazz Bastard podcast. As always, you can download the podcast from iTunes or from www.jazzbastard.com. You can reach us at mike at jazzbastard.com or at pat at jazzbastard.com. We also have a Facebook page. We always appreciate comments there. Please hit us up if you have a moment. Tune in next time as we try to resurrect the long-lost Big Band episode and finish our discussion of 2015's poll winners. We'll discuss works by Darcy James Argue, Michael Formanak, Maria Schneider, Thelonious Monk. Until next time, take care.